Welcome to the Dead Format, episode 1984. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by a guest. Uh, we have Alex McKinley, former local to Acton, Massachusetts, now out in Portland, Oregon, a former Fair Deck player and a new convert to Black Belcher. Is that correct? I don't know if it's exactly new. I've probably been playing TES for most of my legacy career, but yeah, I, I did start on Top Miracles. And depending on your definition of fair deck, it uh, may or may not be fair. <laughs> so it was just straight from Miracles to uh, to Storm? Or? I, I did take a pit stop at uh, Ant for a month or two, and then I was like, I'll buy these red cards and see how they play, and I just enjoyed playing TES better, and it felt like it fit how I play Magic better. Nice. So when did you start playing online? Um, I started playing online fall of my junior year of college, which would have been two years ago end of 2017 oh so still playing miracles right no that's i was i was on ts at that point oh shit really uh, yep i hopped off the deck um a bit before the ban maybe it was maybe it was 2018 yeah that sounds more yeah like it would be 2018 yeah, yeah okay y- years are hard <laughs> <laughs> so i was gonna say man that was still when i was playing at etsy so i don't ever remember seeing you on uh on test there when i was there I did, I did play TES a bit at Etsy, and kind of, you know, being at school, it's, school is six hours away from Acton, it was a bit hard to, you know, commute for FNM, that was not quite realistic. Yeah, I feel you, man. I'm, I'm just working in Quincy now, and like, it's, I can't get there. I can't get there in like less than two hours after work, so I just haven't made a Tuesday night in probably two, two and a half years at this point. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah, dude, it's fucking insane. It's not just that like I moved, but I think the traffic's also just gotten like much worse in the greater Boston area in the last two years. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I don't know. So living in an area where streets are actually designed for cars, it actually feels pretty nice. Like Boston's old enough that like streets are just designed for horses. So the streets in Portland are designed for cars? Because I always thought it was just leftist rage that they were designed for. <laughs> no, actual cars. <laughs> Interesting. It's good to know if I ever make it out there. Yeah, also if you go to rural Oregon, it is very redneck. <laughs> so I've heard, yeah. I mean, what was that that shit where they were like, basically like bunkered down with guns or something a while back? Yeah, I kind of ignored a little bit of that, but it was, it was a little bit crazy. There was some standoff brewing, yeah. Yeah, I'm in an urban enough area that it just doesn't matter. There was a reasonable chance, I don't know, if you've been a listener, you might have heard about this, but there was a chance I was moving to Portland for a while. Yeah, I did hear that. And yeah, I was just like, I don't even fucking know, man. <laughs> like, I don't know what to expect going out there. It's not as different as you'd expect. The biggest difference for me was actually the time zone. Like, just waking up three hours after everybody else in the country, and you're like, wake up, and you're like, oh, I have 4,000 messages from everybody on the East Coast, and Twitter, stock market, the news, they've all been going for three hours, and you're just waking up. And that's a bit of an adjustment to make. That actually seems like a nightmare to me, because I'm like a night owl anyway. So basically, I feel like, you know, the stock market closing three or four hours after I woke up would be like terribly disruptive for my lifestyle. Yeah, it's definitely an adjustment. So what's the legacy scene like out there? It's actually pretty good. I have two weeklies that I attend and uh, Mox Boarding House might be the nicest gaming store I've ever been to. They're opening one in Portland soon, but I've, went, I've been to the ones up in uh, Seattle. Yeah. And basically we got to play a, a 3K in a ballroom. And there's like a full restaurant as part of the gaming store. So like you can order beers, burgers, whatever, and like not have to go anywhere. It's kind of sweet. 
Was that in Ballard or was it the other one? Uh, it was in Bellevue. I'm going up actually to uh, the Seattle one uh, this weekend to play a 1K. Okay. So that'll be fun. Yeah, the Bellevue one is sick. The The Ballard one is, is sick in like its own way too. Yeah. I'm excited for it to open in Portland though. That'll be nice to not have to drive three hours to it. <laughs> yeah. It looks like a nice building too. I saw a couple of pictures online. Yeah. Yeah, that's sick, man. I mean, it seems like if there's any strongholds for Legacy at this point, like any specific uh, cities have the edge, I would say it seems like Boston, Philly slash Maryland, Chicago, and, and the Pacific Northwest are probably the best bets, right? Maybe the Bay Area, too. Yeah, I think also Arizona has a pretty strong scene, given how many streams they've been doing. Yeah, they do, for sure. But uh, we just lost Sugi time. He, I, I saw him, like, salt posting that he was selling all his cards, so. Yeah, I think uh, Casey Lancaster was saying the same thing. I don't know if that's, like, um, a sort of, like, an act of rebellion, or I'm so mad every time I look at my cards that I just want to get rid of them, you know, like, a, something you're doing out of anger, or what. I, can, I honestly can't really relate to that feeling. Yeah, I can't either. I'm... I'm in an odd position because I am definitely part of the younger generation of Magic players where uh, the game is older than I am. So I know you guys have talked about nostalgia, so I don't have nostalgia for some of these cards because I'm playing with pieces of cardboard that are older than I am, which is a little bit crazy to think about. But I, I still love looking at the old cards. Like, I chose to upgrade my dual lands into unlimited dual lands. Oh, sick. Um, yeah, because white border fetching is just so much easier. Yeah. And Unlimited Volcanic Island might be the prettiest dual land out there. Absolutely, bro. <laughs> but I think for some people, it just depends on what your goals are. If your goal is to play a game and have fun, then Legacy is a great outlet for that. If your goal is to be competitive and go on the Pro Tour and take part in the whole Magic Esports thing, which I don't think Wizards is handling very well, then Legacy is not a path to the Magic Esports. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because it actually probably... They still do have paths. Like, you could just play Legacy exclusively online and make the Pro Tour, right? Some people are, are going to just by virtue yeah, of how Moto set up this year. Yeah, it's definitely one or two people. It's a lot of tournaments to do, and it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's definitely possible. Yeah, um, I think that there's two Opens that have PTs. Like, like for this calendar year, there's two Opens, and there's three Moxes that are like qualification tournaments so i would i think it would be five or actually yeah. eight players because the mox is the top two spots one of them gets an invite to the pt and one of them gets an invite to the pt and some other high equity tournament so yeah. i think it's a total of eight legacy players will be making the pt that way so it's i guess it's sort of the same as when we had a grand prix yeah, that's pretty cool. I should probably look into that more. Like, I play a lot of Magic Online. I just haven't really looked into the, like, the whole cascading tournament structure. Dude, it's, um, it's really hard. I had a the only reason I know is because I had to write the notes on it two weeks ago, and like I actually <laughs> had to sit down and figure it out, and it took forever. But also, bought, I bought into Moto around the time that this cast started, you know, a year and a half ago, yeah. and I played maybe three challenges in the first two months. And it was, like, seriously upsetting my life. It's just, like, a huge commitment, like, a huge time commitment that you're, like, shackled to your, in my case, your tablet. Like, I could go to the gym in between rounds and, like, try to ride a bike and use my tablet for moto, but it was a fucking nightmare, bro. 
I don't know. It's just uh, super inconvenient to, to play like a tournament. Because like when you're home as an adult, it's not like you're just doing nothing, right? Yeah. And that's some of the convenience for me is that I am just barely peeking into adulthood. Um, uh, obviously, I'm living on my own. I have my own apartment and stuff. And I play a faster deck so I get big breaks in between rounds. Um, so I can just do stuff like shower, clean, whatever, as I'm doing it. And then also because I'm on the West Coast, the tournament starts effectively three hours earlier. So I get, it's not like weirdly lumped in the middle of the day. Um, round one starts at 8 a.m. for me. Oh, that's great, actually. Yeah. That's a huge advantage. So yeah, you're showering and cleaning. You have a big leg up on uh, the majority of <laughs> Magic players, I'd say. It's good you have yeah, to figure out early in life. I do all my own cooking, too. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, yeah, basically, we wanted to have you on because we have neglected Combo for, I'd say, about 83 episodes now. We basically <laughs> don't talk about it at all. Actually, Tom played Sneak and Show, and this is kind of where we we're going to start, was like the four horsemen of Combo. So this is going to be like a deep dive on Combo really quick. And sort of just outlining it for people who might not be familiar with the terms. And also to sort of set a baseline for how these decks have been shaken up this year. And really just sort of get into a lot of stuff that we've skirted over in the past 83 episodes. Yeah. So I had written down the traditional four horsemen of explosive, approximately spell-based, in quote, combo. <laughs> And you actually clarified this into A plus B combo and engine combo, which I really appreciate. And you taking the impetus to edit the show notes, I appreciate very much, because I've given everyone the option to do that, but you're the first one who's actually done it. So traditionally in Legacy, there's Doomsday, right? There's Breakfast. There's, there's all these combo decks that you hear about, Belcher, Oops, all these decks, but really... The, the decks that you're preparing for when you're getting ready for a tournament in terms of like spell-based combo decks are two A plus B combo decks of Show and Tell and Reanimator, and the two engine combo decks, or macro archetypes, I should say, of Storm and Dredge. Yeah, and I think you could include Depths as an A plus B combo deck as well, even though it's not quite as spell-based. And I think that you go about fighting all of these decks very differently, and you definitely play them differently too. And they all have different strengths and weaknesses, which is really nice. But I think what's different between like fair blue players and combo players is that combo players don't swap between combo decks as much. And I'm not 100% sure why that is. I think it's because there's like people just like their combo deck and they stick to it. Fair blue players will be like, oh, I'm playing Delver this week, I'm playing Stoneblade this week, I'm playing Miracles this week, or Four Color Control. I mean, assuming you have the cards to flip between those, but you feel much more comfortable because your skills transfer across those decks a lot easier. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, there are a lot of dedicated combo players, you know, certain deck masters, people that you know, you know, 90% of the time they're going to be on this certain deck. And you know, I think that a lot of these decks are particularly rewarding to that sort of like hyper focus. Whereas a deck like Stoneblade, I've never heard. You know, obviously some people are better at playing it than other people, but I've never, you know, heard of somebody being like the Stoneblade master, right? I mean, you hear like maybe Shaheen Sarani or something like five years ago, but yeah, or Joe Lissette with Top Miracles. Right, right. It's a lot more fluid, though, in my opinion. With Miracles. That's actually an interesting case, because I think that there were a lot of Miracles experts out there. That was almost yeah. like a cult for a while. 
I mean, I think it still is, but <laughs> really, not maybe not as much because it's not like the top deck anymore. But it definitely has its followers and its fans more than other fair blue decks. So I guess to like talk about the distinction between an A plus B deck and a engine combo deck. Like an A plus B deck is you have your A of some quantity and your B of some quantity, and when you put them together, you put something together that generally wins the game, either on the spot or gives you an overwhelming advantage. A really good example that comes to a lot of people's minds is the Splinter Twin combo from Modern, um, which some people have been playing in Legacy. But with show and tell, your A is a show and tell or sneak attack, and your B is is a fatty or surrender and Emrakul, and then sometimes an Omniscience. And reanimator is your creature in your graveyard and your reanimation spell. Um, and kind of the way you divide up those decks is you have your uh, you have your A cards, your B cards, your dig cards, and your uh, disruption cards. So for um, Reanimator, that's your Faithless Looting. So your Protection Spells is all discard. But for Show and Tell, you have the Cantrip Cartel, and then Force of Wills is Protection. And one thing that I personally enjoy about Combo is that it tries to reduce the game to about as few cards as possible. So you don't really care about the whole, like, true name nemesis nonsense that's going on you're just like yeah that's a three one cool yeah absolutely this is kind of nitpicking but i just wanted to say that the discard and reanimator does sort of double as as more looting effects right so yep, it, it does have that ability it is kind of in a way like an a plus b plus c combo deck because you need to get the fatty into the yard as well yep but i think it's sort of eight by eight by eight if that makes sense whereas mm-hmm. Stick and Show, I think, is structurally the better deck because it's it's just sort of a flat 8x8. Eight eight. And, you know, there's a lot more permutations of hitting that combo than at 8x8x8 eight by eight by eight, where you need your discard outlet plus your fatty plus your reanimation spell. But Reanimator can do it on a lot less mana. It's using black, so you can ritual into the stuff. You get the benefit of... Well, I guess, I guess Unmask isn't really a benefit... Yeah, unless on the other side, but yeah, those are kind of the same card. Yeah, um, functionally in this matchup. So, and then to contrast with engine combo, engine combo, there's no specific combination of two cards in the deck that like straight win you the game. For traditional like ant combo, for ant storm, um, you need like uh, a tutor and then like a couple rituals and some storm count. And it's it's a lot more nebulous about what you're putting together. I think that's why people identify Storm as one of the harder decks, because it's not as clear as, oh, I have this show-and-tell and this crystal brand. Wonder what I do with them. It's like, okay, I got this tutor and these rituals, and can I go off? Should I go off? There's a lot more intricacy to those questions. And Dredge, Dredge is an, has an engine combo deck, but it's a little bit different than a Storm engine, where you're building from your graveyard, and you're building up your graveyard by dredging every turn and using your draw step in weird and wild ways that kind of just breaks magic. Yeah, for sure. And Dredge is definitely touching on the line, and so is Ant to a degree, but touching on the line of like critical mass combo, where you know we're not putting Elves in this discussion, we're not putting even deck like Infect, which it has a combo kill, but we're strictly sticking to these quote-unquote spell-based decks, even though Dredge might not be the best you know, spell-based example. Yeah, and so to talk about the deck that I play all the time, uh, the Epic Storm, you can kind of look at the deck as having three engines to it of uh, Ad Nauseam, Echo Vions, and then a Natural Storm plan. 
where you kind of like your goal is to cast one of these cards and then have enough storm to continue from there and draw a bunch of cards and and just win with your cards because you have so many cards and so much mana that you're just falling over yourself to kill your opponent yeah for sure and i think that one of the reasons people think of storm as being a hard deck to play you know a particularly difficult deck to play i think that you know making making good reads and being able to bait people are two definite skills with the deck so i think that that's yeah. that's a part of it like the, the poker player because i would say 70 percent conservatively 70 percent probably more like 80 to 90 percent of magic players are basically playing the game with their hands face up with them and their opponents in most cases they're not going out of their way to conceal any hidden information they're wearing their emotions on their sleeves they're just playing the game pretty much straight up. Sometimes there'll be like one key bluff that they make in the course of a game or try to execute it clumsily, but people really aren't playing that level of, of the game by default, I would say, like coming from limited or coming from standard or whatever. You're sort of just playing your cards out. And let's say you're playing a deck like, like Stoneblade or Delver. You can just sort of play your cards out and counter your opponent's spells and use your removal and... Sometimes you'll make a mistake, like you'll you'll overextend into a wrath, or you know you'll point a removal spell at the wrong target, or you know you'll daze into a chrome mox that you forgot was out there. You know you'll make these mistakes, but they cost you a single card, right? And you can generally claw out of those holes. Whereas with ant or test, you're going all in. So if you make a mistake, it can potentially cost you six to seven cards, and you look like an idiot. Yeah, a lot of the times those mistakes can cost you the game. And sometimes they're as simple as just stacking a ponder wrong. So I was on um, the Eternal Frenemies uh, stream yesterday, which is like basically a teaching stream where she brings in um, a bunch of uh, legacy exports and has them uh, talk about the deck and run through a league with her. And there was a ponder. So our hand was like uh, Dark Ritual, Dark Ritual. And we were playing against uh, Turbo Depths. And I don't remember what the ponder was exactly, but there was an Ad Nauseam in it. And she accidentally stacked it so the ad nauseum was the top card, so that's what we drew. Um, or would have drawn if she hadn't misclicked and shuffled it. Oh. Yeah, which was fine because we got thought seized. And what I was saying on stream is is you don't put the ad you don't draw the ad nauseum, you put it one down so that you don't get discarded. And that that's just like one of those little things where like if you stack your ponder one card wrong, you just lost that game. Which sometimes happens in fair decks, but a lot more in unfair decks, where you're compressing the turns down so f so few, and you're making just as many decisions as you would in a longer match. And each of those decisions is really, really important. And I think that's what scares people sometimes, is that, like, the feel-bad of, oh, I, I just threw this game because I misstacked this ponder, and it's like, I, I don't want to do that. And then also, especially with TES, is that uh, you can play, if you could play every game 100% perfectly and still lose. You could navigate perfectly through your opponent's permission, resolve your business spell, and then it just whiffs. And that happens, and you just have to accept that. Yeah, and if we're being honest, I think that that's why I gravitate away from playing Ant or Tess, because exactly what you just said, you can navigate games perfectly and still lose. And that's also, on the flip side, I think why people put so much combo hate in their sideboards because there are games against all four of these combo decks where you couldn't possibly have won, especially game ones, really, where there's nothing you could have done. You were fucked by the matchup and the opening hands, and especially if you don't know what your opponent was on. There was no decision point for you, right? Yeah. So that's such a bad feeling, like just viscerally, just a negative emotion that people don't like losing to combo, right? 
So I feel like you sort of have the deck stacked against you in terms of sideboard cards. And even if the deck is well positioned, if you're not an absolute master, the risk of the feel bads is too high, in my opinion. Yeah, and you have to recognize when you lost because of a decision you made and when you lost to your deck. Like, sometimes uh, you'll flip ad nauseum empty empty and just like or like flip echo empty empty and just like you're dead that happens your deck was not letting you win today and you just have to recognize that and like not tilt off from the variance and just win the next game or win the next match or whatever and that that kind of has increased with uh the change in tes builds because i don't know how closely you guys have been following the minutiae of everything but uh we cut all the infernal tutors we cut all the discard spells and it's, it's a whole new world for us. So it took a little bit to relearn the deck with all the Wishclaw Talismans and Veil of Summers and how those interacted with each other and how to rebuild the deck around it. Yeah, that's really why I wanted to have you on because I, I have been following it at arm's length. I haven't really been playtesting against it or anything. I played a couple matches against it in the past three months. I would say I played against it three times total. And every time felt a little different. There was sort of this discussion that we'd had about what are considered stock builds at this point and whether we're going to reach stock builds. And, you know, with Tess, there's Bryant putting everything out there on his website and having his cyborg guides out there. And there sort of is a stock list forming around him. If that's true, that that's the perception that I have. Would you say that that's true? So as a caveat, I am part of the, the Epic Storm team and there's, yeah, there's sorry, a whole team of us... Yeah, there's there's a whole team of us behind the deck list. It's it's all under Bryant's like brand, but there's a lot of us making those decisions. We're all talking all the time. We'll usually yeah, I did a shitty job of, of presenting that. I'm sorry about that, man. I, I I meant to say it was like you know under his umbrella, but I, I yeah. just said it was it was strictly him, and you guys are just all lackeys. That's not what I was <laughs> trying to say. No, no, you're good. I think that that's a pretty common perception is that the deck is just him, and that's definitely not true. But it's 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 been a really interesting building a new archetype basically because the deck is still designed to optimize ad nauseum that, that's been the whole goal the whole time is how do we make as ad nauseum as busted as possible um and all of these changes we've made just watching it happen it's basically stock on the website that's like what we considered stock but because of how fast legacy changes currently week to week day to day we, we're making it changes we're adapting we're testing random cards they're not always good we've we've has some very bad lists that we have pretty instantly scrapped. But every once in a while, we stumble upon new cards that are really, really sweet. Um, like for a while, especially in the Ren and Six meta, we had Crash in our sideboard. And that card is like some random common from uh, Mercadian Masks block, which I bet half the people listening to this podcast can't uh, name what it does. But it says, um, sacrifice a mountain to destroy target artifact, or you can pay two in a red. And that card is just was instrumental in us uh, coming forward to beat Chalice decks a little bit harder. Yeah, no, that's, that card seemed great. I didn't realize that it had been abandoned, actually. Yeah, so Chalice is weird in this metagame right now, just in terms of matchup perspective from the TES side of the table. And uh, a lot of the Chalice decks are are also combo decks. Um, like, the only Chalice deck that's like a fair deck is uh, four call alone. Like a lot of the other Chalice Eldrazi, decks, especially yeah, online. Okay, yeah, um, Eldrazi is is back, I guess. Um, but a lot of the other Chalice decks have kind of fallen away, and we see less of it. Yeah. We see more of these like 
chalice LED piles um, that don't really have a set build, but they just happen to like kill you quickly and play a chalice on one. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of all they do. I, I won't speak to how good they are. I haven't played any of them, but th they never feel especially powerful when I'm sitting across the table from them. I agree with you, but I think that in an objective sense, they're some of the most powerful decks in the format because I think that you get the, the free wins out of Chalice and you can outrace the other Chalice decks, right? So, yeah. like, I, I bet that they're all positive in terms of win rate. Like, you know, not ridiculously positive, but I think that they're all preying on the metagame to some degree of success right now. Except yeah. maybe maybe some really bad versions, but, like, the Bomberman deck, the, the various Karn prison decks, the Echo decks, the, the, like, Oval Chase Daredevil kind of obscure breach versions that we've seen pop up there's been like three different ones like i don't even know what the what the unifying theme would be or what to call the deck but i think they're all reasonably good decks but yeah we'll, we'll get to breach eventually yeah. um but uh i guess if you want to like an idea of what the metagame looks like for ts at this point is that so post run is expanding we make this change to the deck and uh, at that point, Miracles was considered the best deck in the format. And we're having these questions about, do we need to ban Ashley? Do we need to ban Oko? Do we, need, do we need to ban Veil of Summer? And we're like, all right, well, we got this Grapeshot card that uh, just kills people through Veil of Summer. So what if we change the deck so that it doesn't care about Veil of Summer at all? Like, we just completely sidestep that whole fight. And so we're just like, well, we'll play our own Veil of Summers and Defense Grid and move this Echo Eon's main deck, except that doesn't play with Infernal Tutor. So then you bring in Wishclaw Talisman. And kind of all of that, what that does is it made a deck that just demolished Fair Blue. Or demolished control decks, let me be clear. Uh, we made our matchup worse to Delver for a couple of reasons. And that kind of involves making our combo turn like three or like two to three mana more expensive. And against a deck that's like playing all this soft permission, that, that's a lot. We also like slowed down a little bit uh, to accommodate for that. So that didn't help either. So we had to change further to adapt to Delver coming back up. But there was like, I think when Miracles was considered the best deck, we just had absurd win percentages. All of us, like Bryant was hitting 80 plus percent. I was hitting at a 70 plus percent win rate. Like it was insane. Yeah, that's pretty wild, man. Yeah. But I did, I did imagine that it was really high. And there's also this bias because like you're looking at the trophy leaders and I'm always from my like... It's like the the Chad test player done with the league in ten minutes versus like the the Virgin Stoneforge Mystic player <laughs> taking two and a half hours like up at one thirty at night trying to finish the first league. But I don't know, man. That, that's just my perception of it. But yeah, leagues leagues are definitely an hour and a half, something like that, depending on how fast your opponents play. Most of the time, you yeah, you run into some real slow opponents occasionally. Yeah, unfortunately. But yeah, overall, I think. TS is relatively well positioned. You have to hope to dodge Breach. Breach is just a terrible matchup uh, because of all the cards that we've kind of conglomerated together. They don't interact very well with Breach. It's unfortunate, but uh, we'll we'll see how long Breach lasts. Um, and I don't I don't mean that in a ban restricted sense. I just mean in a in a state of how long until people figure out how to beat it. Yeah, well, I think it's a good time to talk about the the challenge really quickly. The top eight of the challenge this week a breach deck made the top four and a breach deck also made 10th i believe honor i was in 10th with breach 
Mm-hmm. And besides that, the top eight, there was a lands deck, but then it was three Delvers and three Chalice decks, which to me sort of points to that that visceral reaction to a, a good, strong new combo deck where a lot of people are just gunning for it, right? They're just saying, oh, you know, we need to play Delver or we need to play Chalice, right? Yeah. And so Breach, Breach is an interesting card. So I wrote, as the set was coming out, I wrote an article talking about how I didn't think that Unruled Breach was a legacy playable magic card. And clearly I was wrong, but I don't think I was wrong for the reasons I put in the article. Because I thought of Breach more of as an engine card, where you use it more like Past in Flames to you, you build up your resources and then you flash some cards back or escape some cards and then you win the game. And Breach just doesn't... It's not an engine deck. It's an A plus B deck. Uh, and so when people are calling it a Storm deck, I, I don't agree with that description because despite playing a card with Storm in it, it's it doesn't play like Ant, it doesn't play like TES, it doesn't play like some of the lesser variants of Storm, um, or lesser played variants of Storm like <laughs> uh, like Tinfins or uh, Spanish Inquisition or Belcher even. It just kind of sits there and has Force of Wolves and then it goes off and it is deterministic. If they assemble Breach, a zero mana artifact, and a um, way to mill themselves, that's just the game. It's done. Uh, unless you have interaction at that point, you you have lost. And I think also what I undervalued is how good Lotus Petal was in the deck in terms of acting as this zero mana artifact to recur with um, with Breach. Yeah, for sure. We didn't really have like a strong opinion when we did our set review, and just talking about it in group chats and stuff, I was very careful with what I said about Breach because. Someone put it this way, and I think it's very eloquent. Like, where there's a yog will, there's a yog way. <laughs> and that, that's kind of how I felt about it. Like, I couldn't make the deck. Like, I, I tried sketching out a deck, you know, took 30, 40 minutes trying to sketch out ways to really abuse Breach with and without Brain Freeze, and I couldn't do it. But I was definitely not ready to put my ass on the line with that. So I, I, I just thought it was somewhere between playable and banworthy. Which is a huge, a huge swath, and honestly, that's exactly how I felt about Echo of Eons, right? And that's taken a lot longer to adapt, and I've never heard someone call for banning Echo of Eons. So, yeah, other than other than the spoiler thread where people were like taking bets on how long the card would get to take banned. Oh, really? Um, yeah, <laughs> and we were all sitting there, like a bunch of the combo players were sitting there laughing, like there's no way this card gets banned. Um, so, the the really interesting thing about Breach is that it's incredibly consistent because of Enlightened Tutor. In my personal opinion, I think the Jeskai version is the best version of the deck, and all the other ones have a lot of the weaknesses that I talked about. Um, is that it's you can interact with this combo in so many ways if you know what they are. And I think that that's a big thing, is that understanding how to interact with it and when to interact with it. And that matters a lot. Like, what do you surgical? When do you surgical it? What do you discard? What matters to discard? Do you do you counter the breach? Do you let it resolve and then try and remove it? Uh, and I think the card Silence has a lot to do with that, in terms of Jeskai being very very good along with Enlightened Tutor. I, I've seen people trying to, to shoehorn it into Ant. My personal opinion is that that's people trying to convince themselves that Ant isn't dead. Ooh. So th- this this is not like the like Ant versus Tes. Haha. Um, this is. Ant, Ant hasn't changed in 10 years. It's still basically the same deck it was after, what is it, Mystical Tutor Ban? It hasn't 
changed. It's crazy, it's... man. It really hasn't. And that's something we noticed in our decade wrap that, that I was honestly shocked by is the changes are like the addition of past in flames is basically it. Yeah, basically, or once you get past in flames, the deck doesn't change. It's all about being past in, a past in flames deck, despite they went from like a one nausea. of one of Grim Tutor to one of Dark Petition, like really minor shit. Yeah. Also, you have to like account for the pro ban, which is super easy. It's just like minus four pro minus the Cabal Therapies plus Thought Seizes plus Preordains. Yeah. And that was that was it done and dusted. Um, and I think for the first time, there's a lot of pressure on the Ant community to adapt. Because I think Veil of Summer is to Ant as True Name Nemesis was to a lot of the fair decks. You have to figure out how to beat the card, otherwise it's just going to beat you. And a lot of the Ant leaders have left to do other things, like Cyrus is off on the Pro Tour, and some of the other leaders are messing around with other decks, and there's no nobody who's taking the Ant deck and like pushing it forward. And so people are looking for reasons to keep playing Ant, and uh, just shoehorning in one copy of Breach, one copy of... Uh, brain freeze to make the deck work and attempt to make it work is is not the best way to build a, a breach deck in my opinion yeah no i totally agree and it's, it's funny that you brought up cyrus that i was going to ask you that like who you considered the thought leader of the ant community at this point because i'm not you know active in that community or anything and i just play against you know the people that you'd think of playing the deck online but there's no one that i could point to and say oh this person is the person you'd go to for an ant list at this point in time, right? And the, the, old, the old lists are certainly dated at this point. Yeah, like Cyrus, Cyrus has public, publicly stated that you should not play the list that's pinned to his Twitter. Um, it is designed for a quote-unquote bygone era of magic, which is really funny because it's just a couple months ago, which shows how fast Legacy is moving. Yeah. And, and Veil of Summer is a real problem that Ant needs to solve, and personally I think that TES solved it very, very well for us, is we said, all right, cool we're not going to play our discard spells anymore we're going to play defense grids and veil of summers ourselves and completely change how the deck is is structured because that's what we need to do we need to adapt and push forward and that completely changes how our opponents were supposed to play against us too because uh, there's i've had a lot of, of opponents forcible my dark ritual and that's just not as good of a play as you think it is anymore especially if sitting from the fair player seat yeah this is great to have you on to discuss a lot of these changes because one of the things that I asked sort of early on with Veil of Summer is whether, when when it started to be incorporated into TESS, whether the, the existence of Veil of Summer was a net positive for TESS or a net negative, even though you know having your own Veil of Summer is strong, is just the, the changes that it made to the meta in general. It sounds like by dropping the discard spells, and sort of moving into the silence role that you have turned it into strictly upside. Yeah, we have pretty much made the card into upside, and we're pretty much the only deck that still plays it main deck. I think it's down to about three to four decks in the format that play it, which is basically like some bug decks, miracles, us, and then depths. Eureka I don't think tell. it's yeah, and the blue green omni shell deck. So it's it's not as prevalent as I think people were making it out to be um, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Or even a couple of weeks ago, and it's just really interesting watching that. So yeah, definitely a net, net positive for TES. Yeah, it, well, it's also like the the effect that it's having on the format. I think is really subsided. Whatever, however, you guys are doing this, like brain trust of working on the deck, it's it's super cool. Because like I don't know which other combo deck sort of has this sort of team banging on it. 
I think Delver does to an extent, um, just in Legacy. Uh, there's like a big chat of all of them, but like Delver still has personalization options, and I don't think there is a resource for any other deck quite like the EpicStorm.com. It's we we write articles every month. We have video content. We do streams. There's even a shop where you can buy some of the cards to play the deck, and tokens, stuff like that. Yeah, it seems pretty unique and and like a pretty big advantage to have in this post-apocalyptic world that we're in now, right? Like, it's like Mad Max, and you guys are sitting on this huge water supply. A little bit, yeah. It's it's definitely fun being on the inside and writing content. I actually have an article coming out sometime this week about how we're changing all the lands in TES and kind of the reasons why. Pick up your tropical islands now. <laughs> so you were talking about the, the critical turn, and the way that it the way that I perceived it, like the difficulty with Wishclaw Talisman coming in, was it sort of like a layaway on mana, right? Because you're you're playing it on one turn and hypothetically cracking it on another. I know sometimes you're cracking it right away, but you can sort of pay two up front and then pay one later to activate it. But you also have to use Veil of Summer now on the turn you're going off as opposed to discard which is sort of like a layaway version of veil of summer where you can play discard the turn before you go off so is it a wash in that regard it why would you say that the critical turn is increased is it related to veil of summer costing one on that turn or is it something else um so i think it's more related to wish claw being three mana versus infernal tutor being two mana okay um like the critical turn moved from like being like two and a half to 2.75 so it's not like a huge change but it, it is a change and that we basically traded in some number of turn ones for a very consistent turn two yeah do you throw out do you throw out the serious outliers in that data uh so the way the way we record it is uh you go off on turn one two three or four plus okay there you go and that that's kind of how we I was wondering deal how with the that. serious outliers yeah perfect so looking at my own spreadsheet my current average combo turn is is 2.78 so between turn two and turn three um and that's not accounting for anything like matchup or play draw or whatever but the difference between making seven mana to infernal tutor for ad nauseum and then eight mana to wishclaw for ad nauseum is really really big it basically requires an extra card on average to do that right so if you were to sort the mode by descending would it be three two four one or two three four one in your opinion it's probably two three one four two three one four as yeah. opposed to previously like a two like, two one three four yeah something like that yeah i'm just trying to get a feel for what percentage of games are actually pushed off a turn yeah and so the other thing is is that uh people always talked about how ts was black belcher hashtag black voucher memes stuff like that and ant was the control players combo deck and you could go along and grind with people ts can really do that now with uh echo of eons and these wish claw talismans and just how our disruption works so imagine you're playing just like your standard control deck like you're playing miracles and i just cast a veil of summer you have to force will that otherwise you're you might lose right Whereas if I cast a Thoughtseize, you don't have to force will that. So that changes the context of the matchup, where every time I cast a Disruption spell, you have to force it. And then also I can just like cast a Wishclaw Talisman and just put it out there, whereas I can't do that with Infernal Tutor, 
because you have to be hellbent and you have to go all in for it. And Wish Claw is just, what are you going to do with this? You have no information besides the lands I tapped and then the Wish Claw on the stack. And you have to make a decision from that. So it's you get to play that information game and kind of how that all feeds together a lot differently. Yeah, that is a great point, man. That's it's just the supreme bait spell because you can't you can't take a chance on on the wrong read. Like with a dark ritual, that was typically the bait spell, right? Like you know, if you really don't have anything going on, you're trying to stall the game out. You just cast a ritual and try to bait the counter spell, force a will, ideally from them. Mm-hmm. Veil of Summer is like, there's no you don't even need to bluff shit because they have to counter it, right? Yep. So that's that's another great point I wasn't really thinking about, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, also a lot of things people miss about Wishclaw Talisman is it's not activate as a sorcery. It's activate on your own turn. So if I have a Wishclaw setting in play, and I could I could cast all my spells, go off, you can counter it, I can activate Wishclaw, find Veil of Summer, cast Veil of Summer in response to your spell. To your yeah, counter spell. That's, why, that's what I really loved about it when I saw it. it. It just seemed like such a powerful card that eventually it would find a home. But I think the way that you guys solved this is awesome. Yeah, and it definitely helped with bringing in more Mox Opals to the deck. But on the other hand, it kind of kicked a Chrome Mox out of the deck because there's just no cards to imprint anymore. Like you're imprinting Cantrips or extra copies of Burning Wish or Veil of Summers. You're never making black mana with a Chrome Mox. Interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, unless you're imprinting a Dark Ritual or Ad Nauseum itself, which eh, I don't know about that. Yeah. There's also this aspect, before I kind of referred quickly to Ant as a critical mass combo deck because you need a certain number of cards in your hands to do anything. Unless it's like super like game, you have five lands in play or something silly like that. But to get anything started, you, you need to have cards in hand, and that's why they're so bad against him, right? Like their, their nightmare is to turn one thought, so you turn to him. They're trying to build up, you know, to have the right cards in their hand and sculpt the right hand to go off. So it's sort of a critical mass with the cards in your hand. And I think that Echo has really sort of disrupted that paradigm. And that's another reason that I think Tess is probably better suited for this world is the impact that Echo of Eons has had. I don't want to say it's, it's exactly like Ad Nauseum because there's a lot of different variables to it, but it does sort of give you more outs to that, right? Yeah. And I mean, TS isn't, happy to see Thoughtseize into him either, but right, what's right. different about Past and Flames is that Past and Flames doesn't let you draw any new cards. It just lets you redraw cards that you've already played. So it's it's different in that aspect, where both of TES's main engines, they draw new cards. They, they're extra draw steps you get instead of reusing them. So that's why uh, Ant mulligans terribly. They just need the physical cards to draw them and cast cantrips to build up to threshold to build up to have enough cards to be able to pass in flames loop and ts is like i don't care how many cards i have at the beginning of the turn because at the end of the turn i'm gonna have enough to kill you yeah exactly sorry i'm just looking at the the list right now yeah um you should look at brian's lal list Uh, that's that's what i'm looking at yeah yeah uh so one of the changes that we're making right now is we're trying to beat breach uh because that deck just annihilates us specifically the Jeskai version, because none of our disruption interacts with their disruption very well. I mean, they have the Forcibles and Counterspells that, like, uh, Veil is great against, of course, but Silence is a hell of a magic card. 
in terms of disrupting us because we start to go off they silence us and in our opportune moment it's like well now they probably untap and kill us so we've been trying to figure out how to beat that card and we're, we're going back and we've picked up Xantid's worm again which i don't believe is in brian's lal list no he's got the hope he's he's been on hope for a while right I don't think he had hope either, but... Uh, it's in... Oh, this is 8.5, I'm sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, so I think he has a Goldfish published list with Xantid's uh, Worm in the sideboard. And Xantid's Worm is an attempt to beat the Underworld Breach decks. Because Xantid's Worm does beat Silence, whereas Hope of Gearpert doesn't. I get that now, yep. I, I, it didn't. It wasn't clear to me at first, but you're right. Yeah, it... If they just silence you in response to activating Hope, you feel pretty silly. Yeah, because a one-shot deal. Yep. Yeah, and Hope Hope being a time walk with Suspend 1 was really good, and it being Colos and an artifact, those are both great things. It just doesn't solve what we wanted to solve, which is silence. Here's, here's a question for you. You're playing against a combo deck. Which feels the worst? Getting Thoughtseized, getting Veil of Summer, or getting Silenced? Getting Silenced, no question. Yeah. Okay, that that's also my feeling is that like silence is just not a very fun magic card to play against. No, and that's honestly why I thought Veil would get banned. It sort of has this misstep aspect to it when it when it was more prevalent in the meta, where almost any deck could play it, and also it, it just has like this silencey feel bad effect to it. But actual silence is still a lot worse than that. And I think that if Breach does get banned, that's going to be no small part of it. Yeah, I think the white in the deck is huge. But I don't think Veil is like Misstep. Because uh, Misstep was the best answer to itself, and Veil doesn't answer itself. True. So I think that's a big point in favor of letting Veil stay. And also Veil is a lot more interesting counterplay than Silence, because you can use Veil in Counterspell mode uh, instead of just Silence mode. And it's a lot more interesting of a card to me. Whereas Silence is just like, Play this card. I'm gonna kill you. You can't do anything. Nice, nice game. GG. Next. <laughs> it's kind of funny though because with Teferi running around, and I saw that there was one main in Anurag's list in the challenge too. It's almost like we're, we're more used to it now, getting silenced. Yeah. It still feels worse in Breach, like actual silence. I guess just because. The deck is so powerful, and when you get silenced, you're definitely going to lose if you don't have anything going on. So I guess that's what it is, but it does kind of seem like a lot of matches have some sort of silence effect going on now. Yeah, I I don't know. So I, I don't enjoy playing against Breach, and maybe that's just because I have a bad matchup, but uh, you have written in the show notes here, like, best hate cards. And there, there's a category of card that uh, we in the combo community like to call a bounce and win card. A really hilarious example of this is a card called Amulet of Safekeeping from some core set. Two mana artifact that says creature tokens get minus one, minus O, oh, and counter each spell that targets you unless its controller plays one. So, you know, you can't you can't win with your storm deck when that's in play. But the problem is is that it doesn't actually stop you from comboing off. It has it doesn't kill your cantrips, it doesn't kill your storm count. You just kind of do your thing, find your answer, bounce it and kill them. And I think that's kind of what happens to a lot of the Breach hate, is that unlike a deck like Dredge, where they need to build a graveyard up over several turns, because Breach doesn't actually need that many cards to go off, it just needs the three in the graveyard to initially escape the Lion's Eye Diamond or whatever, it can just sit there, bounce the Rest in Peace, and then kill you. 
and rest in peace doesn't stop it from cantripping, doesn't stop it from tutoring, whereas cards like Chalice of the Void do do that, and that's why they're so much scarier. Yeah. I know Rich played the deck at the Leaving the Legacy Open. He played it on a stream, too, and he was telling me how good it was going into the LAL. He kind of had like a bit of bad luck at the LAL, but I know Anthony Laverti did reasonably well with the deck. I think there were five total players in the field. Yeah, I think Anthony played to a top 16 finish. Yeah, that's not, that does sound right now that you mention it. So one thing that Rich mentioned was that he wanted uh, the card Devastation Tide. Are you familiar with Devastation Tide? It's it's a miracle for one in a blue that says return all non-land permanents to their owner's hands, I believe. Yeah, and I, I didn't actually see any of his games, but I imagine that he was running into situations like Rest in Peace plus Thalia, stuff like that. I, I, that's what I'm thinking. And if that was what was giving him trouble, I started to think about like playing you know, my hate against against Breach being more diversified. Like I was on four ley lines and a null rod in the LAL in anticipation of Breach, in addition to you know the cards that come in because they're okay. But I think I might be off ley lines now or even playing like a, a number lower than four, which I know a lot of people are going to complain about, but whatever. I think that having a diverse array of permanents, because Devastation Tide is such a clunky balance answer, I think that that might be the way to attack. So from sitting from the, the, the Storm perspective of, of a TES player, is that if you look in our sideboard in terms of answers to permanents, they're, they're all like Chain of Vapor, Echoing Truth, Abrupt Decay, where there are these very, very generic answers to things. And a lot of times Breach is kind of doing the same thing with their answers of, if you give them enough time, they'll find their answer and they'll go off. So you can't just play a lock piece, you have to kill them. Right. And a lot of the fair decks in the format currently aren't that fast. And also, there's no discard in the format because Veil kind of pushed it out. And I think Veil coming down, we might see the return of some discard-based decks. Because, And the other thing is, is that you have to know what to take against this deck. Because taking LED or taking Brain Freeze itself just doesn't do anything. Because they're going to be in the graveyard anyway, and you're just going to escape them. And I think that's that's a big point in this deck's favor, is that to me it looks very, very easy to play, but it's extremely hard to play against. And that's I think that's what's giving it a lot of its success. So you're in the this is an easier storm deck camp. Like I said earlier, I don't think it's a storm camp. I don't think it's a oh, storm true, deck. It's true, just you did say that. yeah, you 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 put together your three cards and they're like, oops, I win. And I think that's what makes it easy is that you you can kind of sit there and and stumble your way to those three cards, and then your opponent's like, do I counter this? Do I kill this here? Uh, what what are they playing? And I think now that the lists are more known, people are starting to figure out how to play around it and what to surgical, when to surgical if they can surgical, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. I think that having a, a diverse array, it's just sort of what's in my head from the, the few games that I've seen play out so far, is that having you know different types of permanents, attacking them in different ways. Like, there's Collector Roof and Null Rod to shut down the artifacts. There's obviously Chalice, if you can have Chalice, is great, but in Delver decks you're not going to have Chalice, so... You know, ways to attack the graveyard, like Ley Line, Surgical Extraction, as you mentioned. And then there's not really any analog for Thalia that you can play, because you can't play something like Wet Ball or... No, you could play like a Lavinia or something like that. Lavinia is uh, a great one, yeah. But the interesting... I forgot about Lavinia. Yeah, so I keep seeing Flusterstorm in all these fair, fair blue decks. Really? And I just don't understand it at this point. 
Like, Flusterstorm, to me, doesn't make any sense in the metagame at large. No. I think you should be playing Spell Pierce. I think Spell Snare, too. Yep. Uh, I don't know how I feel about Spell Snare because of, of the Oko battle that you have to play as a fair deck, and countering Oko as Spell Pierce seems very important. Obviously, Spell Snare is great against all the unfair decks. Uh, but having all these one-mana interaction pieces that really just tax your combo turn, especially against Breach, because it usually goes off with not a lot of mana available and kind of needs all of its mana to go off, you can sometimes just like screw them out of out of winning the game because you've you've uh, cast the spell pierce at the right moment. Yes, I, I don't think that spell snare is as good as spell pierce against six planeswalker astrolabe that deck, but. Spellstar is not really a liability either because those decks in the mirror are increasingly about cards like Snapcaster, Mage, and Ice Fang, Colossal. And That's true. you can always trade off your Spell Snare in that matchup. So even if it's not as good as Pierce, I, I don't think it's a liability. I think that it might make up. This is just theory because I, I did play Spell Pierce over Snare in the Living Legacy. But I do think that Snare has a spot in the meta right now again and uh, i'm sort of waiting to see it pop back up yeah flusterstorm definitely doesn't though like out of the out of the couple best combo decks if you look at against tes it doesn't counter wishclaw talisman it doesn't counter defense grid it doesn't counter underworld breach it doesn't counter lion's eye diamond i guess it's good against eureka tell um and that's pretty much it but it's not even good in the Faramirs, where Flusterstorm used to be an all-star of winning the counter war or whatever, because it doesn't counter any plane, any of the Planeswalkers. Yeah, I'd honestly rather play Swansong right now. Uh, that's Instant Sorcerer Enchantment. Yeah, and I don't want to play Swansong. I'm just saying like I, that, that's where <laughs> I'd be right now. I did see somebody playing Dispel. When I was looking at Delver lists like to get inspiration, I was looking at some Bug Delver lists you know, a couple days before the LAL, because I was going to play Bug Delver. And a couple lists that I noticed had actual Dispel in them. That's that's a wild choice. Yeah, that's probably where I got to thinking about Swan Song. But... Yeah, that feels like playing uh, a poor man's Pyroblast. Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of what you have to do when you're in bug colors. Yeah, I think, although you could run uh, Mystical Dispute at this point. Would Mystical Dispute do it against Breach? It depends. It all depends. I mean, you'd probably have to pay three mana for it, which seems miserable. Yeah. But, but I mean, people are paying three mana for Force Negation, so. Yeah, I mean that's different though. Exile, so you get so much upside. Yeah. Either way, it's it's interesting that we're in a point where a combo deck is the best deck in the format right now. I think I think we can pretty safely say that is that people haven't figured out how to beat uh, Breach yet, and that's kind of an interesting spot to be because I don't think people enjoy formats where combo is the best deck, even if it's the best deck by the same margins that like by less margins than say rogue Delver was in the last format. Uh, Cause I don't think it's quite reached that point yet. I think it's just a lot less fun to play against than rogue Delver. Cause you're not playing three turns of magic, getting silenced and then uh, I can't do anything. And that's the game or getting silenced walked a few times. Yeah. I mean, that's getting back to the visceral reaction, right? To, yeah. to play against combo decks. And it's funny because you actually brought up the, the BNR announcement or non-announcement today, right? The Pioneer Pro Tour, Player Tour thing that happened this weekend. I believe the Lotus Field deck, Lotus Field Breach deck, that had like a 60%, 61% win rate, I believe. And this conversation of 
you know, formats where a combo where a combo deck is the best deck, do they immediately get a ban or not? You know, we're discussing this in the context of legacy, but I think it's also a discussion that's happening in the larger magic community right now as well. Hello friends, this is Wilson Hunter from Humans of Magic. We interrupt this program to bring you this message. We got off on a bit of a tangent here. If you are interested in only listening to legacy content, skip forward to one hour, 27 minutes. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I think Wizards announcement of announcing an announcement of an announcement was like, not, not the greatest move. Um, yeah, what, so I kind of, I mean, I read it, but I wasn't really like thinking that hard about it. So what was the announcement? Uh, let me let me pull it up because I think you got to read the the actual words of 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 the announcement. So they tweeted out today. Today won't feature any changes to the banned and restricted list. For further updates, expect a notice for when BNR announcement is coming to plan accordingly. Which is almost a nothing of a tweet. But this goes back to when they said, okay, instead of every however with every set list, we're gonna do it just whenever we're just going to do it BNR whenever we want to whenever we think there's an issue which kind of makes sense because it lets them be more flexible but because they said they were never going to announce no changes again which puts the community in a very nebulous position of like oh is my deck going to get banned on Monday I don't know should I sell my breaches should I sell my inverter of truths uh, because wizards is just going to get rid of them and Wizards really wants to be an eSport. They've rebranded that way, they've pushed that way, and uh, I am young enough that I very much enjoy watching eSports, which I think is becoming more and more true as they're getting more real sponsors. Uh, for context, uh, of, the, of the competitive leagues in America last year, including sports and eSports, the uh, North American League of Legends championship had the third most viewership, including stuff like uh, football, baseball, basketball, hockey, if you put it into that list as the third most viewers. In terms and, of like the championship game, you mean? Uh, just the season in general, but also the championship game. I mean, no, nothing tops the Super Bowl, except for uh, League of Legends World's Finals, because that's uh, an international event. You get uh, Chinese viewership, which is huge. For now. <laughs> we'll see what happens with this 24-day incubation period. But Yeah, I, I, have, I have a whole... Uh, esports tangent if, if that we can go on if you want but um basically wizards needs to provide more consistency to their changes to the game bro they're they're extremely consistent they're changing it every week right now <laughs> yeah they're, they're just changing how they're going to change it every week like honestly you know? that's why i i needed you to read the the banner restrict announcement because I, I i knew what it said but i didn't remember what the previous policy was because it had just changed before that I couldn't remember if it was just Pioneer could change every Monday and the other formats were still on the old schedule or if the old formats were tied to Grand Prix, like upcoming Premier Play events. That's kind of what it feels like is that they are tied to after the Grand Prix, we're going to do a ban. But let's let's take, for example, another another esport that Wizards is trying to compete with in this space. Um, let's take League of Legends. So an advantage they have is they're completely digital, so they don't have to worry about products they've already released. Every single two weeks on Tuesday, you get to read the patch notes of what they're changing for the next two weeks, and sometimes and they'll and they'll talk about what they're changing 
what they're not changing and why they're not changing it, which is think that something I think everybody is asking for Wizards for for a while of, huh, why didn't you ban this card this time? And Wizards is at a disadvantage in this way because they can't go back and buff and nerf cards, which is something the Magic community endlessly discusses. It's just something that they won't and can't do and probably shouldn't do of functional errata. But they they can't announce like this, in my opinion. It's, it's just so unstable. And if, if they said every Monday or every two weeks, we're going to make an announcement about uh, the formats as needed. And if there's not going to be any changes, we're going to say that there's no changes. And that's okay. And maybe talk about why there's no changes. You think that would be preferable? Yeah. I mean, imagine every Monday they, you logged on to Daily MTG and you're like, here's my BNR announcement. Check what's what's uh, changed this week, if anything's changed this week. And then you, you move on with your day. Instead of this nebulous state where it's like, are they going to make an announcement? Are they not? We don't know. Well, I think that that's sort of precedented on the expectation that there's going to be some sort of acknowledgement of cards that are on like a watch list. Like, we're monitoring blah, 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 because X deck is, is doing well, but we're not going to ban anything yet. In that scenario, I would agree with you, but I don't really see the distinction between posting no changes every Monday between now and the next ban and the way they're doing it now. And maybe I'm missing something. I think it's more of like knowing that if there's an announcement versus what the announcement is are two different things for people, or it feels like two different things to me at least, of not knowing if there's going to be a ban announcement. And I think just knowing that you could go and check and know for sure is I think they kind of like train the community to not always check like first thing in the morning for, for bands because Pioneer bands came uh, later in the day after lunch, quote unquote. And all of that kind of screwed things up for Wizards. And they like I think what they did with Pioneer was really, really smart, but they kind of trained the community the wrong way of anytime on Monday, there could be a ban, we don't know. And that's that's the issue is that they need to kind of bring some stability back to the BNR announcements, in my opinion, of just like figuring out how to communicate the best way to the community about if there's a banning and what to do when there's not. Is I don't think silence is the correct answer when there's not a banning when you're on this non-schedule. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. And at least if there are no changes, if you're if you're making an announcement of no changes, there's at least like a discussion surrounding that so you're peripherally aware of it. And like the the missed announcement is a real thing because like i don't know four years ago i guess it was now at this point i can't believe it was four years already but i used to be like checking reddit daily just just sort of my my level of involvement with the game maybe or the organized play scene and now that i'm i'm not really involved with it i check it like once a week mostly because of this podcast so a lot of times i do miss these announcements and I think that, you know, going on vacation or, you know, people have real lives and stuff. You can just easily miss an announcement in this sort of schedule in the worst case scenario, right? Yeah, because you never know when it's going to happen versus, you know, that there was an announcement on Monday that may or may not have said something, which I think is two different states versus what we have now. Yeah. And there's like not really central repositories for these these resources either. Like when you... When you go to check like a format BNR, I just Google it and maybe I land on Goldfish or maybe I land on uh, Gatherer or maybe I land on Scryfall or, you know, and like maybe that say hasn't updated yet today or maybe it 
hasn't updated in three or four days in the case of Gatherer, right? So <laughs> there's been times, especially recently, I think it was Pauper maybe, where all the deck lists said that they were illegal because a ban had happened and, and they hadn't applied the, the new ban list to the site yet. So yeah. there's sort of that gap too where there's not like these central repositories of ban lists. Or if there are, they're not like the top result when you Google it. No, I mean, I usually get into like the Wizards official one, but I don't know how long it takes them to update that. And finding articles from past days on Wizards' website, it's a bit of a challenge. Oh, God, dude. <laughs> It's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. So if, if you miss it by a few days and you have to like scroll back to see, was there an announcement? Is my deck legal for this for, for FNM this week? I don't know. Dude, you know what's kind of interesting? You know how modern Pro Tours had always outperformed standard Pro Tours in terms of viewer numbers? And that was sort of the argument that modern players would make for having more modern Pro Tours? Yeah. It's not apples to oranges because it was a player's tour, which is like a regional pro tour or whatever this past weekend. But I was surprised to see the numbers. They had less viewers than than your average standard thing last year. Yeah, so I think that they advertise the heck out of their arena events because they want arena to be the premier play platform. Oh yeah, no, throw arena out because of all the body and shit. But like, just the paper standard stuff that... As far as I know, the numbers are legit for They look organic. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, like, Modern always overperformed, and it seems like a lot of people are in on Pioneer. But I think that really this uncertainty regarding the ban list has sort of dampened people's expectations and excitement about the format because, like, me personally, I built a deck and 12 cards were banned before I actually played a match with it. Oof. And I'm sort of in the same spot. Like, what am I going to build inverter right now or something? Like, no, of course not, because I'll probably it'll probably be banned before I actually play a match with it. So, so it's like this weird thing, man. Yeah, I think also people got untrained from watching the official Magic Channel for Twitch coverage. Like, they use the Magic Channel for so many different things that I think that they would be best suited to like split it a little bit, or at least be more creative with their stream titles and going live messages because i watch a lot of twitch i have it on the, in the background at work and you know the going live message of telling people what you're doing and for magic it just says they're going live i don't know what for but they're going live and it never entices me to tune in and they've kind of they've stopped the grand prix coverage which i think a lot of people were no doubt just because they wanted to watch it but they kind of untrained everybody from tuning in every weekend to watch something or whatever that may be and so they've had these events that are kind of in bet- in terms of prestige in between the the old Pro Tour and a Grand Prix, which I think that this tiered system makes a lot of sense on a, for a lot of reasons uh, to be qualifier events like closed qualifiers like that. That's a very common thing in 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 tournaments. It's a closed qualifier. I don't think that's a bad thing. But when we get to PT finals, it'll be interesting to see what viewership is then because that's that's like bigger than a Pro Tour. And we'll see what we'll. I mean, Worlds is going to do insane because it's on Arena, and Wizards is going to Wizards has been knocking it out of the park for uh, content for that, which I really appreciate. And it'll just be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, definitely. When is uh when is that the Players Tour? Uh, the PT final or the the PT finals? Yeah. I don't know off the top of my head. I I do know that Worlds is this weekend. Worlds it's is this either, weekend. It's either this weekend or next weekend. No shit. Yeah, it's it's coming up. Um, yep, it it begins this Friday at 11 PST. So, 
I think that's going to be a fun event to watch. It, it definitely should be the biggest event that Magic has ever done. Bro, are they drafting in paper and having it on Arena? Yep. <laughs> I fucking knew it. I knew that, that was what they were going to do. I mean, they did, they did later say that eight mans are coming. There were some development screenshots that came out. Oh, really? Um, but yeah, but I don't imagine they had time to finish it because like transitioning from like one person drafts to with bots to eight man drafts just seems like such a big step. Uh, like I, I I work in networking software for a living at this point, and man, it's hard. Bro, this is yeah, this is interesting because I think you're the first developer we've had on that I can think of. Uh, Rich Rich is Rich does lots of software th- lots of software things. Yeah, we didn't really go that direction. Maybe we did a little, but I do talk to Rich about this quite a bit. He's he's more on like the security side of things, um, but he he does have a vast wealth of knowledge around this stuff. But I think that uh, in general, there's such an underappreciation for what Moto is. And oh yeah, I, I I just like shudder at the thought of that project. The twenty five to 30 years of cards that we have now, 27 years of cards or whatever. And like all the, all the shitty cards, like Sylvan library, you know, people always bring up humility or chains of Apostopheles, these absurd situations that you can get into. I've played, I don't know how long Moto keeps your, when you go into your game history and look at the, like the record by format by format, I have over 2000 matches in whatever period they're still tracking in there. I've never hit a bug before. Like, I, I just never have. I, I've hit a couple. I've I've had the Veil of Summer bug happen. Um, right, yeah, that was one. And and for a while, there was a bug with specifically the FNM copy of Tendrils of Agony, where <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't trigger uh, Leovold more than once if you clicked on your opponent's avatar. <laughs> which leads me to believe that the architecture under Magic Outline, they've coded each card each version of every card individually, which seems hilarious and yeah, doesn't make any terrible. sense. I, I'm I'm sure that given how old it is that the architecture is not very future proofed, but it's it's amazing how well Magic Online works for for what it has to do. It really is, man. And we can only speculate as to like what which resources are being allocated in which direction, right? But the fact that new sets are coming out on Magic Online and they're just ready to go. There's not any bugs in the new cards or anything. Like, they've been able to handle that. The backlog of, like, bugs, existing bugs, hasn't grown as far as I know. Like, there's always one or two weird things outstanding that you can put in your claim for, right? That you're supposed to you're supposed to know about if you're, if you're going to be playing the card through leagues consistently. But yeah. it doesn't seem like that's been impacted at all by the launch of Arena. No, and if anything, Magic Online has gotten better since the launch of arena like that's how it feels yeah yeah they've done the whole visual overhaul they've really doubled down on trying to make good systems for magic online and i really appreciate that because that's honestly the best place to go play legacy at this point is magic online oh yeah and i think i think i almost enjoy playing magic online better than paper because it just keeps track of all the triggers that you don't have to worry about cheating you don't have to worry about cards and marked cards and all that other nonsense you just sit down you play and you don't have to shuffle yeah no absolutely i mean i'm certainly a convert i'm playing plenty of of moto every day but i i wonder how the the development team for arena is working because it seems like they're having a lot of issues popping up like i saw something with uh the card agonizing remorse do you think it's all in-house or 
they, they've said that they've contracted out some of it to another company at this point. They just announced that. I forget what company it was, but th there's basically two companies working on it now, of Wizards in-house and this this other company. But also, I wouldn't be shocked if there have been more games played on Arena than Magic Online at this point. In terms of, like, aggregate? Like, total number of games. Hmm. Like, given respective player bases, just, like, ease of getting into Arena games and stuff like that. Yeah, including all the the beta and stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I bet you it's pretty close, at least. Which, given that Magic Online is what seventeen years or uh, fifteen years older, that's that's quite the jump. Which is is awesome for Magic overall, but it and it, it just shows that like the like Arena is being stress tested so much more, in terms of like what the what what is demanded from it by by us Magic players. It's such a smaller application, though, right? I don't know. It's got all the visuals in it, right? It does, but I mean, those are those are basically just animation. I, I assume they're store client side, but yeah, those are just I files. Mean, yeah, I, there I mean, something... do the, do the do they interact in ways with each other? I, I assumed that they were just like you play this I don't card, think and so. Splash, like it's basically just like a GIF or something. Basically, yeah. I think that they talked about at some point the fact that they were using like natural language processing to read magic cards, and we're we're probably gonna go a little bit deep into the computer science realm here, but um, magic is basically a, uh, a language. Like, there's, there's, there's a set of, of words that mean certain things that you're allowed to have next to each other, that they're all formatted the same, and they end up doing certain things. It's like a lingua franca, yeah. Yeah. Um, in school, did you have to do, like, the, the symbol, and then an arrow, and then another set of symbols? I, I can't remember what it's called. Right, um, I, didn't go, I did not go to school. Oh, okay. Um, I had to do I mean, that. Yeah, I a did. Lot. I was, I, but I was political science. I, I'm just a self-taught programmer. Yeah, uh, but there's there's like regular expressions. This thing, or regular languages. That's what it is. No, not regular languages. Regular expressions. Uh, Context-free grammars. That's that's what okay. they are. Is they're they're more powerful than than a regular expression, but less powerful than a Turing machine. Uh, they're that in-between state, and. Um, you can you can kind of fit magic cleanly into into one of those uh, language into one of those grammars, and the, and just kind of have it run off of that. And you need to obviously program in some certain things to make things work. But under underlying the like draw a card does the same thing every time. I, I think that they they were talking about how they were using a little bit of that in natural language processing to be able to like uh, and machine learning, which is basically a nonsense word at this point, to import cards faster and every time you added a set the next set would get added faster and you kind of build all the sets upon themselves like that i, I mean you can see how that how that would happen right as you, as you sort of move things into a parent class as as they show up more and more throughout the sets like you say okay this we're abstracting this set of words or this phrase right yeah you can sort of move those into into the abstraction but each set has like its own mechanics and each set has five or ten rares that are going to need to be individually coded because they do stupid shit like uh, Splendid Sun or whatever the fuck that card is called. Approach of the Second Sun. Yeah. Like, dumb cards like that, right? But Approach approach on its face doesn't do anything extremely complicated. It puts a card uh, seven down from the top. I guess the, the weird thing is that it does need to keep track of if it it's the second time you've cast yeah. it. Yeah. Right. So, like, you kind of just... You're not going to benefit from abstracting that. Yeah. So I think they they said that it was going to help and add help 
get things on there faster. But yeah, that was quite a tangent. <laughs> I'm I'm still ready to dig deeper, but like I, I just yeah. I'm so fascinated by this. I haven't actually played. Have you played Arena? Yeah, I played Arena pretty heavily when it was just Guilds of Ravnica, the first set of the third Ravnica block on there. And I played the Arclight Phoenix deck, and that was so much fun. The interface felt really, really clean. Like, you could just drag cast cards. You you definitely didn't have the ability to interact as cleanly with priority as you do on Magic Online, but it felt it felt like a real AAA title in terms of, like, a video game. And, and less like this clunky interface from the 90s. So they did a very, very good job skinning the game. Yeah, I, I've never played it, so I, I don't really know. But what I heard was that moving between that block, uh, which ended with War, into uh, Eldraine, I don't know if they're even called blocks anymore. I don't think they are. But there was some sort of like massive hiccup there where everything slowed down. Did you Do you know about this? I, I did hear, hear about a bunch of performance issues, which is interesting. Yeah, that that's what got me nervous that maybe this wasn't being abstracted to the level that they were leading us to believe because Eldraine didn't seem like a particularly difficult set to code from... Like, I just... When I'm waiting for my opponent to make a move, I just sort of think about this shit. Yeah. And it actually seemed like a pretty straightforward set. There's the complexity of adventures, right? Yeah, but, that's definitely a weird mechanic. But once you get that done, that's done for all the adventure cards. Exactly. And there's there's no, like, weird corner case adventure... Uh, you know, Fae of Wishes goes to your sideboard. That That's about as crazy as it gets. But that's something that they've done before, because there's the four-mana uh, two-to-your-library or two-to-your-sideboard. So that's not a new effect for Arena. Oh, you're right. Yeah, and uh, there was a big hiccup about how rotation worked. So, um, How rotation worked? Yeah, because they were like, what do we do with all these old cards? Because we have oh, historic oh, yeah. now, <laughs> and all that nonsense. Yeah, but, it's funny. We actually did like an episode on this. And I never actually finished making my point, but there was sort of the, the problem of if if the old cards aren't more expensive or rarer or, you know, able to operate in some sort of market, what's going to pe- keep people playing standard other than the the mythic championship weekend or whatever versus playing something like Pioneer. And they tried to solve that with the, the two ticket or whatever the fuck it is, two wild card yeah. way to get cards that are in historic. That just doesn't make sense. Well, uh, it, from... they, they ended up rolling it back pretty quickly, right? Exactly, yeah. It doesn't make sense. It it makes sense if you're like, oh, you're going to pay twice as much for your, for your non-rotating format deck as you are for your rotating format deck. But the difference is that you can sell cards in the real world and on Magic Online, and you can't on Arena. There's no trading. Right, so. no, I agree, but from from their perspective, they have to gate that format somehow because it's so much less lucrative for them than keeping people on the rotation hamster wheel. Oh yeah, I think the problem they ran into was is that is that immediately after rotation, standard sucked. Like they had to ban, they had to go like through like three bannings or whatever, right? Uh, I know Field of the Dead, Oko, Vale, uh, not Vale Summer, Once Upon a Time. They did ban Vale, yeah. They did ban Vale too. Yeah, I think so, it was yeah. two or three bannings, yeah. But the problem is, is that on Arena, you can't just go play another format. You're going to go play another game. And uh, you have uh, Riot Games entering the space with uh, Legends of Runeterra. And from what I've heard, the game is fun. It's it's not magic, but nothing is magic. But 
uh, Riot Riot also makes League of Legends, which is the biggest esport in the world. So they they know how to make a video game. They they know how to keep you interested, and they're they're not doing the traditional open packs and get cards. It's a different progression system. I don't know exactly what it is. I haven't played into it yet, but. Wizards has real competition. I don't think Wizards ever realizes that they have competition. They're just like, oh, we're, we're Magic the Gathering. We're the original card game, and nobody's ever going to challenge us. Why would they do that? We're, we're just going to keep doing whatever we're doing because we have a captive audience, and that's less true than it's ever been. Yeah, and I think that they haven't done themselves any favors in keeping their captive audience. I think like you know the sort of spurning of legacy players this year is just the latest example. You know, Not just throwing us like a bone of one legacy Grand Prix or whatever where they could have done that and gotten a lot of goodwill out of it, right? Yeah. But they, they went the other direction, sort of saying, get fucked or, you know, do what you're going to do, which is fine. You know, it's, it's their prerogative. They can do what they want. But it's it's not making me want to, you know, support the other aspects of, of what they're doing if, if they're going to go that way. But I feel like they've really not gone out of their way, but... They've really just showed a lot of disregard for the local game store model, the former player acquisition models. It seems like they're all in on Commander as their player acquisition model at this point. Because I think Commander makes them the most money in paper. (sighs) Probably. So think back to... I I was listening to your history of, of Legacy Podcast, and you talked about how there was standard. There was just standard. And Commander was a thing, but not really widespread yet and i think commander by numbers is probably the most popular format in magic right now for for a lot of reasons it was modern for a while it doesn't rotate you get to keep your cards it's not as expensive as a format like legacy or modern even because you don't need to always buy four scalding tarns or four force of wills you just need one scalding tarn and one force of will so that's like a quarter of the cost right there i mean people obviously go to ridiculous lengths to pimp their EDH deck with foils and judge promos or whatever. But I think overall it is a cheaper format that it doesn't rotate. And Wizards is like, how do we monetize this market? And they're, we're seeing a bunch of Commander products next year, so they're clearly trying something. And I think the traditional idea that the competitive Magic player is the cash cow for Wizards isn't true anymore. Like, they've made it so much harder to get to that 1% of being a Magic Pro. That it's these 32 players and these are the pros. And then we have these rivals that are kind of pros. They're the, they're the amateurs. And everybody else is, is just a player. And that that's kind of like where the branding comes into the players tour. And all of these things together make it harder to get onto the pro tour and into that being a Magic Pro lifestyle. And if, if it's so far out of reach, like becoming a pro basketball player. I'm just going to play casually. I'm just going to play pickup games. And that and the easiest and the best way to do that apparently is commander. Yeah, the only reason that that I question whether commander makes them the most amount of money isn't because I don't think that it does right now because I do think it does. But it's a question of potential, right? If you end up going down that path and really gaining people off, why are you wasting the budget on like competitive standard tournaments at that point and will the money lost from the grinder class falling off like not the not the actual grinders that are 90% of the way to the pro tour but the ones that are 10% of the way to the pro tour 
if they fall off and just become commander players, are they going to keep spending money in the future? That's what I'm not sure of. I think the commander decks sell extremely well every year. You have reprints that's there for commander. You have commander, essentially commander masters coming out this year with commander legends. So I think Wizards is trying to monetize this market more because it's the biggest part of the player base. And I think one thing Wizards has started to realize is that showing premier events doesn't sell cards. Players sell cards on their streams, on with their brands. I think it is true that in the past they were like, oh, people will pick up these cards because they won the tournament. And instead, I think it's becoming, especially in this day and age of, oh, this player played this deck. I'm going to go pick up these cards because of this player. And Wizards has started pushing the players to have brands and be bigger and to advertise the game for them. So it's like a couple steps removed. Yeah, I, I can definitely feel that happening. And, you know, they, they shrunk the MPL actually from last year. So Oh, yeah, it's 24 now or whatever? I think so, yeah. So it does, it seems like they've really cultivated these sort of streamers and these players that are bigger personalities. They've sort of had a lot of two steps forward, one step back approach to it, but it's clear what direction they're going, right? Yeah. Like everybody's kind of aware. And I just, I don't know what the end game looks like. And they, they have something or they had something. And you referred to this with Riot coming in with Terra or whatever it's called. They are taking their paper player base for granted, right? That it's always going to be there. And I'm not sure that, I don't know. See, part of it is that I don't play Commander. I'm not like that personality. Like, I think that's that's very much the Timmy archetype or psychographic of player, right? Like, you know, I there's mean, no, you're not supposed to win, or I don't know what the fuck Commander's about, but like, you're you're supposed to like have fun, not win or something. I don't know. But you can definitely spike out. I I picked up a play group at work and we play once a week at lunch, and it's pretty fun. It feels powerful. It feels fun. I'm I'm not like spiking it out completely but you know i put together some fun cards that you don't normally get to play in legacy and it's it's fun i can relate but, to it i guess with old school because I'm, I'm sort of doing that with old school i guess yeah but but there's sort of like a different expectation there where you're expected to be playing as hard as you can even if you are doing cute shit if you beat somebody playing cute shit you just earn more style points than beating them with stock shit right yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't really understand the, the draw of Commander. And like you said, maybe it's just that I haven't met the right people to suck me in. And maybe there's something there that I'm missing. And I do know players like Serious Legacy Spikes, like the core of crew. I don't know if you know those guys in Boston, but they do play Commander once in a while and enjoy it, it seems. So. Yeah, I, th- I think it... It, the nice part of it is that there's something for everybody in the format, um, but that it's and it's okay if it's not your format too. Like I think I I enjoy playing Legacy a lot more. Like the the mind games you get to play with one opponent of, and I think that's what drew me to to Storm is the ability to play these mind games much more than than Fairdex is. Is your is the battle isn't taking place on the battlefield; it's taking place in your hands, and that's what I enjoy about Unfair Decks. Yeah, absolutely. So, do you want to go back to uh, go back to the notes to do the uh, deck dump combo edition? We we probably should do that, right? <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. We're at uh, we're crossing the hundred minute mark right now. All right. First off, this is Alanor. 
And these are five level lists. Do you know what Paradigm Shift is? Do you know this card? Um, it exiles your library and then shuffles your graveyard into it, similar to Inverter of Truths in Pioneer. Yeah, so it's a one blue sorcery from Weatherlight. I don't know if it's been reprinted, but I do recognize the card from Weatherlight. I didn't realize that there was a card that did this. It, it's just Inverter of Truths, right? Yep, except it's not also a 6-6. Six, six. Right, true. But it is blue, and it's two mana spell as opposed to four mana spell. So this deck, Alinor has gone all in on this Thassa's Oracle plan. So there's four Laboratory Maniac, four Thassa's Oracle, and one Jace Wielder of Mysteries, alongside these four Paradigm Shifts that we mentioned. The regular 12 Cantrips, four Force of Wills, four Fluster Storms. And there's also four Thought Lash. Yeah, so Thought Lash is from Alliances. Cumulative upkeep, remove the top card of your library from the game. If you don't, remove your library from the game and bury Thought Lash. Whoa. And then also has an activated ability of zero mana. Well, it basically it's remove the top card of your library to prevent the next damage to you. So you can play, you can just pay Th Thought Lash as a four mana exile your library. Holy shit. Yeah. What a wild magic card. Bro, I never even saw the activated ability on that card. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I thought that you had to wait till your next upkeep and exile your library. No, no, it's just four mana exile your deck. Yeah, that's sick, man. So, yeah, basically this is uh, clearly inspired by the inverter combo in Pioneer right now. <sighs> what do you think of this deck overall? This looks like a deck somebody put together to try to do something fun. This does not look like a deck that will become a legacy mainstay, but I think this looks like a deck that you play in a league uh, when you are not 100% sober just to like see what it does and have so much fun. It definitely does powerful things. I don't see how fast it does them because it does have this this fair plan. But also, it's, it is an A plus B combo deck, so you don't need any resources like your graveyard or uh, your life total to win the game. So you just kind of like eventually build up to a point where you have a Thassa's Oracle or a Labman or a Jason play. And then, like, you exile your library somehow with Oracle Paradigm Shift or Maniac and Thought Lash or Jace or something. So. Yeah, and this deck gets to play. So, in the land sweep, there's two Flooded Strand Four, Misty Rainforest, one Delta, eight Island. So, 15 blue mana sources and then four Ancient Tombs. So, you get that benefit as well. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense when you're trying to cast cards like uh, Laboratory Maniac and Thought Lash. It is a bit awkward at casting your double blue Thassa's Oracle and your triple blue uh jace wielder of mysteries but that's fine you got yeah. lowest pedal for that yeah that the the wielder does seem particularly difficult to cast but this deck i don't know man it it doesn't look that unwieldy right the deck that i'm thinking of is breakfast and i think that this is actually just a superior version of that deck probably yeah um i was playing the league with brian and we ran into actual breakfast and they killed us on turn two which was wild um <sighs> i think Thassa's Oracle represents something that we haven't had in Legacy before, which is a one-card way to win the game with no library. Because it's very easy just to ditch your library. There's a lot of ways to do that. But Thassa's Oracle just is the de facto best win condition because it wins through removal, and it's one card. You don't need to do this Angel of Glory's Rise, bring back my lap mana, Zombie Lady of Scrolls, and yeah. all that other nonsense. You just put a Thassa's Oracle in the play with no library, and you win the game. Yeah, for sure. I think that you're right about the genesis of this deck. It seems like just an experiment that went particularly well. But 
I'm not ready to dismiss this as, you know, totally just a joke that we're never going to see again. I think that this showing up at the same prevalence of breakfast is, I would almost expect it at this point. Yeah, I think that there will always be a exile your deck or get rid of your deck when the game. And that's going to be a archetype of legacy. Um, as, as a combo player, like the issues I have with this deck, and there's there's also a big thing of Brewer's Advantage. When you play something non-stock, Legacy yes. players have no idea how to react. They're like, "What is going on?" There's, there's, you see, like, you see these lands, and it's like, I've only seen islands and these cantrips, and oh, there's an ancient. I'm playing against sneak and show. I'm gonna prepare around sneak and show, and then, and then it's not, and so you get blown out by that. So I think there's a bit of brewer's advantage going on here, and, I mean, the, the deck is clearly powerful. It does the things, and it, and it'll show up from time to time. It, I just don't expect it to become like like breach levels of good, but I've clearly been wrong. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't expect that either, but it's just like when when you look at the deck like Breakfast, they're playing so, certain cards that don't do anything except function in an A plus B role. Like uh the the Nomad El Course and you have like uh Narcomibas that you can technically pitch to force, but there's awkwardness if you if you get too low on them because you need to dread return, and then there's also the issue of um, like the the whole Stoneforge package. Like you play a batter skull to like stall the game, but you're not winning any fair games or not many fair games with you know any sort of fair plan. So I just feel like this deck is a more streamlined version, right? This deck knows what it wants to do. All the cards are blue, so they're all going to pitch to force. I'm surprised not to see more force negations in here, but I think it's because force negation doesn't work on your own turn. Right. So there's yeah. there's that aspect. Um, so one thing about combo decks is that you want to play good cards to enable good cards. And and what I mean by that is is that you play is that you want to is you don't want bad cards in your deck. And I think that the problem with this deck is that it has too many bad cards that you wouldn't really want to play on their own. Like Thoughtlash is not a legacy playable magic card unless it's in this style of deck. Laboratory Maniac is not a legacy playable magic card. And well, so I don't know, so man, forth. because if you play Thoughtlash out just to play it out, it's an energy field. Yeah, but that's also a four-man enchantment. Like, right, I mean, it's, so it's not getting abrupticated. It's basically, it's not getting fucked with. That, that is true, but it, it doesn't do that much on its own, is, is what I'm trying to say, is that it's not a good card in isolation, otherwise we'd see other decks playing it. Or that, that's not really the metric I'm looking for, but... It's, it's not good enough, it's not you know, a legacy yeah. caliber card, but it's not a useless piece of cardboard if it's not an A plus B scenario either. It, it does have a function. Yeah, so I think in contrast, if you look at some of the established combo decks of Legacy, Gristlebrand is an objectively good magic card. Right. Emrakul is an objectively good magic card, and you play other really powerful cards to make them even better, like Show and Stell and Sneak Attack. Uh, and you do run into the problem of sneak and show where you're like, oh, my hand is just all idiots, or my hand is all uh, all broken spells that put creatures into play for free. And I think that this deck will run into that problem of it will have too many of A and too many of B and not be able to filter between them enough. I mean, you do have a lot of A and B, but I think you'll just end up in the case where you'll have, like, you'll just try and go off and you're like, huh, I got these three maniacs and this thought lash. Yeah, this doesn't feel great. Yeah. Do you know that card that's like um, 
fuck adrian used to talk about it all the time it's like grab from infinity or some bullshit like that like take a card from uh, exile yeah I, I think i know what you're talking about I'm thinking about that card now with the way that, that Thoughtless functions. Like, if you could just grab a, a Thassa's Oracle from your exile pile or whatever. Um, I thought it only pulled cards with flashback. Um, that could be true. I, I honestly, I wish I could think of the name of the card. Uh, so, Pull from Eternity is one, is one white for uh, put target face-up exiled card into its owner's graveyard. Oh, into its owner's graveyard. Fuck. Alright, never mind. Yeah, so people played that with Echo of Eons to keep doing that more and more and more. Right. Okay. Alright, never mind. Skip that. So, <laughs> the next deck up, uh, Zhu Genju playing Painter Breach. So this is, the Painter is one of those spots where I thought that Breach would actually be good in, because you have you have all these good cards together, and you're making them better by playing a Norworld Breach. Because if you just start like casually milling yourself with Grindstone, you get to build up a graveyard to do kind of a fair uh, Underworld Breach thing. And then you just get to flash it back into play, and then put your Painter Grindstone combo into play and kill your opponent that way. So I really like this idea. I think I've played against this, and just kind of bowled over it, because it doesn't look like it has a great combo matchup. But right. it, it does make sense from that perspective of I'm going to put cards in my graveyard. I'm going to play cards with more synergy here. Yeah, I like that. I I totally missed this. Like, I hadn't heard anybody talking about it. I hadn't thought of it myself. But I do like that grindstone synergy that you're talking about. It seems pretty good. And see, this deck seems particularly resilient. But like you said, resilient isn't what's being rewarded right now. No, being, being well, resiliency is being rewarded, but also just power and flexibility, too. I, I don't know how I feel about the Infernal Tutors in this deck, but um, I, I guess if you're going to play Lion's Eye Diamond, you're going to play Demonic Tutor with it. That That is a powerful combination of cards. Um, I just don't know if it's worth the inconsistency in your mana for. Yeah, I, I don't think that I would have gotten there, but I've, I haven't put a whole lot of... Wait, are there no Talismans in this deck? There aren't. No. I, when talisman... I saw a Welder, I just assumed that it would be there. So I think that Talisman is kind of counter the plan of Underworld Breach because it doesn't go to the graveyard. I, I I guess this makes sense of, like, if you have, like, LED Tutor Breach, you can put together Painter uh, uh, painter Grindstone pretty easily. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. But also you just brain freeze your deck and then you don't need a tutor for it anyway. Yeah, and there's no silence sort of effect in here, so... No, all you get is the Pyroblasts, um, which they appear to have cut from the main deck. Uh, yeah, there's only one that's in the main deck. They have four Pyroblasts in the sideboard um, to turn on with uh, Painter Servant. Yep. The next deck, I didn't actually realize this, but the next deck on the deck dump is Teabag Tom with <laughs> this pile, this cocaine control deck with two Uros, two Leovolds, I guess that's, that's the only crazy thing in here is two Uros, but just wanted to shout him out real quick. He's still out there doing his thing, and uh, respect. Yeah. But I believe there was a Miracles list by uh, Sam Rukas, um, also known as the Zookeeper, that top 16 the challenge with an Uro in his four-color Miracles list. Yeah, I did see that. I didn't realize who it was, but 
I mean, Uro's a really strong card, but... Yeah, uh, one in a green is a very powerful casting cost, it turns out. Or one green-blue. I had one in my Rug Twin deck, and then when I actually cast it, I was like, oh, this is just stupid, because when you attack with the card, you, you do its activated ability anyway, so it didn't actually make sense to put a Splinter Twin on it. But yeah. It yeah, does, I had, uh... It is worth trying a lot of spots. I had one in my uh, sealed pool for the pre-release, and it was it did some dumb things in limited. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, dude, I've opened five somehow. That's and, insane. And it sold them all for over forty tickets. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've only opened like one of most of the other mythics at this point, but somehow I got five of those, so I'm not gonna complain. Yeah. So next deck, you know him. Monkeys can't cry. Um, Ant Master. But this this is no ant deck. This this is this is this is a pile. This is um, fair magic. This is Baleful Strix Town, right? Oh yeah, there's Baleful Strix and Force of Will and Brainstorm. Got a Predict Thoughtseize. Uh, you know, one Lion's Eye Diamond, two Lotus Petal. That's fair magic, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean these um, dark rituals are just a hard cast force, I think. Yeah, or maybe maybe this Doomsday. That's that's probably it, right? <laughs> Dude, so this is pretty cool, actually. This is just, like, fair deck with Doomsday Kill, right? Yeah. I don't exactly know the Doomsday Kill, but I, I it probably involves Thassa's Oracle and Street Wraith to draw it. Um, kind of sweet is uh, the Waterlog Grove to draw into your Doomsday pile. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I like that part. I like the uh, Thassa's Oracle, obviously, is the reason that this is popping up, but Street Wraith, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah. One Edge of Autumn. I, th I think that basically says sack a land draw card. Uh, the actual text of the card is um, it's one in a green. If you control four or fewer lands, search your library for a basic uh, land card, then put it onto the battlefield tapped. And then you can cycling to sh sacrifice a land, and I believe it's just a draw into your doomsday pile. Gotcha. Makes sense. Um, so what would your doomsday pile be? Probably. Well, it depends where your Thassa's Oracles are, because you might need to put an unearth in there. I think you just want it anyway, because Doomsday searches your graveyard too, right? Search your library and graveyard for five cards? Yeah. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. I forgot about that. Yep. Yeah, so I think your pile might be uh, Predict on top, uh, then Thassa's Oracle, and then Unearth. And then you draw into your pile, you predict away your Thassa's Oracle, draw two cards, play Thassa's Oracle, win the game. I think that's the default pile. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Yeah, because you, you win the game with, even with two cards in your library with Thassa's Oracle because your Devotion of Blue is two. I don't really see any alternate piles looking at this. I mean, there's LED, so there's got to be something going on. Yeah, I, I wonder if LED is just like uh, cycle your thing, hold priority, crack LED. I, I assume yeah. there's more piles. I, I have never played Doomsday to to figure out how to do this, but I, I think Doomsday is back into it being a playable magic card, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it seems that way, right with the printing of Oracle. Oracle's done so much for so many decks. It's uh, it's such like a innocuous little piece, but it's the best version of it we've ever had. Yeah, I think Breach is getting big headlines, but I think Thassa's Oracle might be the best card in, in Theros. I don't, know if, I don't know if I'd say that. <laughs> you mean best, like most powerful? Seeing the most play. Um because it's it's in all the breach decks, not not by number of copies, just by appearances in decks. Yeah, yeah, you could be right. I wish I could say more about this this doomsday list because it looks really sweet. I just 
don't ever want to pilot this deck. <laughs> it's, no. it's just too much for me. It actually is more approachable, I feel, than the, the older Doomsday decks. I used to just like try to avoid them at all costs, but Probably. Th these piles do seem like you can sort of reason your way through them. Yeah. So the last deck from this combo dump, Maraxis of NL. I, I, you're going to love this one, man. I think I know what this is, and this did pretty well in some other events recently, too. Yeah, not not quite this version, but yes. This is a uh, this is Grixis Delver, right? Yeah, just more fair magic. Yep, Grixis Delver with three Lions Eye Diamonds and two Underworld Breaches, three Infernal Tutors, and a Brain Freeze. Yep, that's yeah. just that's what it is. <laughs> um, so so to dig into it more, because I also got so, a spicy Croxa Titan of Death's Hunger, uh, which is. The discard a, make your opponent discard a card without ta without targeting them, so it dodges Veil of Summer. And I believe this deck's win condition when it brain freezes itself is to bolt your opponent out of the game. Oh, really? Yeah. Because there's there's no or I mean you can just like brain freeze them out of the brain game, but if they them, yeah. um but if they if they have Veil, then you have to bolt them out of the game, which is very gotcha. doable. Yeah. Um, but I believe this deck uh won the Dutch Legacy Open. Uh, this weekend as well, oh, no or something similar. I think this deck has huge Brewer's advantage because you're you're sitting there thinking that you're just playing Fair Magic, and then suddenly there's an Underworld Breach and Alliance at time, and you're dead. But this yeah. this seems pretty fun. Um, I think I people... would be tempted to call it all Brewer's advantage, honestly, because I don't think that this is necessarily better than like a World Gorge or Dragon deck. Yeah, uh, I think Kaling to Dust is not close to a playable Magic card. There's there's two in the <laughs> seventy five here. I think people oh. got really baited by by a certain article calling it the next death right shaman and i don't think it's even close like have you ever read the card cremate that's that's what cling to dust is except yeah. it doesn't you don't get to flash it back once or twice <laughs> yeah i don't think that it's very good either but i did i did sort of reserve the the right to have it appear in like the mid-range piles as like a one-off just to have like a, a main deck card that wasn't a liability as Graveyard Hate, and I'm not sure that it's not fit for that role, but I definitely wouldn't play it in this deck or any sort of Delver deck, right? Yeah, I I think that the bar for Exile card from Graveyard is so that 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 effect is so low in terms of like what that's worth as a card that it's it's almost not worth including in your deck. Like when you could be playing uh, Surgical or Extirpate or Fairy Macabre. Uh, or the flashback one that Reanimator plays sometimes, but not in your main deck, right? I mean, absolutely not in your main deck. So th that's the thing. Like, I don't think Cling to Dust is a sideboard card. I think that it, it could be a main deck card because it's like a, a hedge to these strategies where it's relevant, right? These these like uh, game ones against Reanimator, or whatever. You can eke out some value there, and but also like counter a Snapcaster or whatever in a fair matchup. Like, I feel like it, it might just be good enough to justify a spot not it would never be correct right but it, it would be potentially not as high of a liability maybe i don't know i feel like the only combo deck that you'd want uh cling to dust against actually is reanimator because like breach will just go around this effect uh with the number of cards it puts into its graveyard and like you might get them one out of every four or five games right. but they're just going to go straight through it most of the time or you're not even gonna be able to cast it because they've silenced you um, I think this deck is is cool overall. I don't think I think it's 
straight brewer's advantage of like sometimes you have this oops I win button with uh, the breach combo. But yeah, it's kind of cool. There's no wastelands, which is kind of interesting. But it does still have 17 land. Dude, what the fucking Caracas in this deck? <laughs> That's so greedy. That's what so is greedy that? in your one blue blue uh, dot deck and your uh, RRBB with uh, Croxa. That's so greedy. So there's Infernal Tutor. So there's situations where in the right matchup, like literally only against uh, Depths, basically, you would <laughs> crack your LED, discard some number of cards and Infernal Tutor to get the Caracas because that will buy you some time. But I just don't feel like that's a winning line anyway, right? No, because they're going to have like Sylvan Safekeeper once they see that in, on board. And you have to do that at Sorcery Speed. So it's not even like they can make the 2020 and then you like crop rotate for it like you could at a Rug Delver. Yeah. I spent also, a, a ridiculous amount of time looking at this list trying to figure out what I was missing with this Caracas. <laughs> also, also, you have like Brazen Borrower. Like, yeah. I don't know. Also, the, the numbers on this deck are all over the place. Like two Ponder, three Force of Will. <laughs> Uh, you gotta make room for Croxus somehow, right? Yeah, and your LEDs and Brain Freeze and Underworld Breach. And also, I think that there's like a legitimate thing of using Underworld Breach as just like a draw two cards out of your graveyard type of thing. Yeah, I've been wondering about that. I haven't tried it yet, but... Yeah, like when I wrote my initial article, this was before Thassa's Oracle was even spoiled, but um, I thought it might have a place in Burn of just being like flashback to Lightning Bolts and that being an okay thing. Uh, and it, you can kind of do that in this deck and probably even better because you have the Thought Scours to flashback two Lightning Bolts and just randomly two mana deal six damage. Yeah, it makes sense. I think that uh, this deck, man, I'm just glad you're here to talk about it, not Tom. <laughs> yeah, combo, combo is a whole different flavor of magic. Like, I think when you transition from playing a fair deck to a combo deck, you need to relearn how to cantrip. Um, because they, they talk, I've, I've heard of this legacy parable that the best brainstorm is the one that you never have to cast. Hmm. And that's just not true when you're playing an unfair deck. Like sometimes you just cast brainstorm on turn one and then you win the game. Uh, or you never cast brainstorm without a shovel effect. Well, does it matter, uh, if, if I have a shovel effect, if the game just ends? No. And that's, that's, that's a great part about playing combos. That's, that's just your answer to, to a lot of, uh, problems in legacy is, eh, if you just remove your opponent, you need to, you don't need to worry about removing their creatures. So as a developer, in this this scenario that you're talking about, like the turn one brainstorm with the uncertainty, are you actually calculating the, the probabilities of like, okay, I need to find, if I find these two cards in this brainstorm, I can go off and just win the game versus saving your brainstorm for when you have a shuffle effect and, and you know playing a longer game? Or do you just sort of play enough games that you would sort of get like an instinctual feel for it? Uh, a bit of both. So um, one thing you get really good at is uh, doing approximate odds and and say, okay, if the game goes X more turns, am I more likely to win then or if I do this now? Um, and that's kind of the big question of playing TES in general is that none of your lines are deterministic and you have to figure out which of these gives me the highest percentage of winning, which is just magic in general, but it's a lot more compressed when you're playing Storm. And you're like, all right, I'm going to win or lose on this turn. Uh, 
So I have definitely done out the math of going truly all in on a cantrip. I even wrote a calculator to do this, which is on the epicstorm.com uh, slash cantrip calculator of if you cast a ponder on turn one and you crack two LEDs, what is your probability of winning? Just like doing stuff like that. What is it? Uh, I mean, it depends on, on how your deck is constructed, but it's higher than you'd expect. It's like about 60%. Yeah, I was going to guess 40. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's figuring out things like that and just vaguely the chances of your opponent having a card versus them having something else and figuring out all of those relative statistics. It doesn't matter what the actual percentages are as long as you know what's greater than greater than what. Um, right. So the probability of your opponent having their one of, very low. Uh, probability of your opponent having the card that beats you in two turns, eh, that, that's different. Um, so that, that can be a decision like, for example, um, you'll find this totally wild, but uh, back in, uh, t at the beginning of 20, 2018, when Miracles was, uh, when Miracles was back after it got banned, uh, and it was just reintroducing, like, the Predict and AK build, and it was just like, wow, I cannot beat this deck by going long. They had the, the two-man enchantment from Ixalan, um, Search. Search for his Kanta, and so and it was like, and the traditional theory had been, oh, you board out Empty the Warrens against Miracles because they have Terminus, and, and then we're like, what if we just put these Empty the Warrens in our deck and just kill them on turn one before they can set up Terminus? Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of the percentage play we made there, and that's kind of the line you have to take a lot more now because a very very common decision tree you'll have to make is, is I've cast Burning Wish, I have a bunch of mana, and a bunch of Storm. Are my chances of winning highest if I cast the front half of Echo Vions, the back half of Echo Vions, or Empty the Warrens? Like, what what do I do then? Um, and that that's an in-the-game situation that you have to figure out almost every time it happens, because it's almost different every game. Yeah, and one thing that we didn't get to, but was on the show notes, was like the crossfire hate from uh, Plague Engineer. And I feel like that probably comes up in a lot of the math, too, like if you're playing against... Delver mid-range decks that what's the chance that they have a Plague Engineer and I can make 6 Goblins now or 12 Goblins then and but, you know, which one's going to beat the Plague Engineer. Exactly, yeah. Um, so since since the Switch, the percentage of kills with Empty the Warrens has dropped significantly. And I think that's just because we've been playing less to it, we don't use it as much. We use it pretty much exclusively in the Delver matchups uh, and like matchups where you have to go fast. But looking, looking at my personal spreadsheet, I win 71% of my games with uh, Tendrils of Agony. Um, wow. And then, yeah. So, and then uh, I win 12% of my games with Empty the Warrens. And I win more games with Grapeshot than Empty the Warrens at 13%. Jeez, I would not have guessed that. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to kill them through Veil of Summer on the same turn somehow, right? Damn, man. Well, yeah, this is uh, our longest episode ever. I mean, it's going to get edited down a bit, but I think we should probably wrap here. Yeah, it was a good time. If people want to, if people want to find you, how should they do that? Um, I stream occasionally at twitch.tv slash vivaris. I'm on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash vivaris underscore. There's some wild company that took actual vivaris, which is kind of annoying, but you know, that's what fine. What the fuck <laughs> is, is vivaris like a Latin word, or is it just some like? World of Warcraft default name generator thing. It's kind of a Latin word. Um, it it came from a, basically a, a 
role-playing situation where I was like, I need a name to name a god of life, and apparently this is this has some ties to the word life in Latin. I was like, yeah, this is a cool name to use for an online persona. Why not? All right. So yeah, Vivaris, if you want to look for me, it's uh, at Ian18195. Uh, if you want to find Tom, T. Smiley, MTG maybe. Uh, DeadFormatCast, DeadFormatCast at gmail.com. You can reach out to us. We'll respond two months later, like we did for Alex here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a good way to eventually reach us, I guess. And yeah, yeah this was a this was a pleasure, man. I think we had some good conversations. We're gonna have fun editing this down into a palatable uh, experience for our listeners. I might move the developer talk to to the end to the the bonus if people are hanging on for it and keep all the combo stuff compressed into like one ten or something. Yeah, that might make sense. It's very enjoyable, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I I had a ton of fun. Yeah, we'll do this again sometime for sure. Yeah, hopefully. What are you coming back east anytime? Um, not for a while. I'm coming back east in August for a, for a wedding. But other than that, well, I am going to the uh, Missouri MTG 20K. So oh, that, nice! I'm super excited for that. I kind of got screwed because I blocked that dude on Twitter because he kept tweeting out fucking grab bags, and like I was a, a few people that I followed, like a few mutuals, just kept retweeting or liking them. So like every time I logged on Twitter, I'd be like looking at fucking Twitter with 40% more ads or like 400% more ads. I meant to say, because like it was constantly like, look what I got in my grab bag. Look what I got in my grab bag. So I'm like, fuck this. I'm just muting this guy. Yeah. I totally missed that this tournament existed until it was already sold out. Oh no. 